I'm joined today by policy analyst and advocate, Melissa Embarki. I'm really looking forward to hearing her perspective, a first-hand perspective, on what issues Indigenous communities are facing and just how weak the promises of the federal governments have been in raising the quality of life on reserves. All Canadians deserve to know what fellow Canadians are dealing with without the cloak of political semantics. Stay tuned. Today, a special episode of Return to Reason, where knowledge and wisdom intersect. Melissa, thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Very, very good. You know, I want to say when it comes to this topic, you're quite the advocate for people who don't have a voice. And, and, and I think it's valiant. I think it's great and it's needed. And, you know, could you tell me a little bit about how you got started in this and a bit about why you do what you do? Well, thank you. Um, you know, I grew up on a reserve. I left when I was 17. I pursued a higher education because I wanted to bring things back to my community that could help us. Um, you know, I grew up under a water advisory. I We went years without water. And even today, um, you know, the services that we receive are lacking compared to Canadians. And, you know, we still have cisterns. I, we have our water truck to us that that's 2023 wow. in most indigenous communities. So I'm very passionate about bringing indigenous issues to the forefront. And so, so tell me a little bit about how you, how you go about fighting these things. Like, I guess, is there hope in bringing change to any of these areas? I have hope in that, you know, we'll, we'll end these water advisories. Yeah. I have hope that my community will have water that's piped to them yeah. as opposed to a truck delivering it. Um, you know, they have limited amount of water usage per week. They only get one truckload of water. And that yeah. is unacceptable in today's world. And, and if I can bring um, awareness to that, then I'm doing my job for my community as well as for other communities. Well, and I just kind of want to clarify. So if you're bringing truckloads of water, and that means, and I know this might sound obvious to, to you, but I didn't realize it until I actually thought it out. But if the water's coming on a truck, that means it's not running through the pipes, which means it's not going through a hot water tank, which means it's not hot, clean water to shower in. So it's just drinking water to make food with, to drink. So what, do you, what about pipes in the housing? Are, do the houses even have pipes? How, just explain to me a little bit about what you grew up in and maybe with the current state of your community now. Well, the houses have, we have a cistern and it holds, um, you know, a certain amount of water mm -hmm. for families that are fairly huge. Um, you know, they have really limited access to showering, to yeah. doing laundry. Uh, this all what came to light during COVID because, mm -hmm. you know, you need water to properly sanitize your home. Totally. And a lot of communities didn't have this. And, and in some instances, there was the water truck and the driver was actually spreading COVID to the community. So this is a very dangerous situation. Um, if we don't address this, if we don't get clean water going right from the mm. water treatment plant to the home, there are a lot of variables in between where a lot can go wrong. And we see that. Not only this, uh, my stepdad still lives on the reserve. So when we visit him, mm -hmm. um, we're limited to the amount of water that we can use. We're just using it for basic things like cooking. Uh, we have water jugs that we drink from. We don't we don't trust the tap water. They tell us it's clean, but we don't trust it. And, you know, we're limited. We cannot do laundry. Like when we visit, my dad yeah. tells us you absolutely cannot do laundry this weekend. And that is our reality today. That's the reality on reserves today. So when, when, like, uh, I would imagine people have reached out to members of parliament and MLA. 
what do they say? Like, what, what, like, how does that interaction go? Because I would imagine, and, and I know it's a bigger, and there's a lot of nuances and details and funding and, and I get it. But if that were to happen in Calgary or Edmonton or Toronto, there'd be a huge uprising. Uh, uh, and it would be very, very quickly handled, I would imagine. So what is it that's stopping this from happening? What, like, because I do know that Justin Trudeau, like, I know he came in and, and promised that he would solve these long-term boil, long-term boil water advisories when he came in. And he, he did attack a bunch of them, but I actually found out that 87 out of 105 that he went after weren't even properly done. They, in fact, went on yeah. new boil advisories and it just was sounded very broken. So are they just promising and missing the promises or, or is it actually that difficult to achieve this? It is not difficult to achieve this. So you brought up if this happened in a city, for example. So let's say, you know, your your basement flooded or you mm -hmm. didn't have water in your home. The first thing that you would do is you would call a servicing company to come in and look at it. Indigenous people don't have that autonomy. They have to call the federal government first. The federal government then sends somebody to our community, could be six months after, could be a year, who knows. They come out to our community, they assess the situation, they draft up a plan and then they tender the project to the lowest, you know, to the person they can pay the lowest. And once they t have this contract in place, then it could be another year before they come out and actually fix the issue. Now, the thing is, is that because we can't go to our own servicing companies, we don't have that, let's say, one year period where if something doesn't work, they have to yeah. come back and fix it. We don't have that. And if it doesn't work, then we go through that same process again. And that is the issue. It, the, this whole process is top heavy. It rarely involves our community unless, you know, unless the contractor's chosen, then we're forced to go with whoever they had chosen. And sometimes they don't work well with them because of previous experiences where they came in, promised to fix it, and they didn't. So there's yeah. that tension there. And this is the issue. This is why it's continuing to happen. If we were allowed to contract our own, you know, our own personnel to come in and fix this, we would have our water advisories fixed within a year. And hmm. I worked with an oil and gas company, and we would have water wells drilled and set up and piped within a month. So this whole picture that they're drawing out, oh, well, it takes time, it takes money. That's those are excuses. You know, yeah. if you contracted the right person to come in, your issue is solved. So tell me why you can't contract the right person. Like, so you're saying the government is only allowing certain services or certain groups to come in? Well, we don't, uh, we don't have control over our infrastructure. So wow. if we need a water treatment plant, if we need to build a new road, if yeah. we need to, for housing, yeah. we don't have that autonomy. And, yeah. you know, the government gets to choose how many new houses that we build on our reserve. They get to choose where the road goes. They get to choose when our water is fixed. You know, it's very uh, paternalistic in nature and that needs to stop. You know, we so this, to... so, so I've, I've read about this and this is the autonomy issue that I think that you address every once in a while with. So how was this? How did this come about? Was this through when the when the treaty was agreed with the reserve? How did this come about? Where you don't have a say or vote or any ability to decide? Uh, the Indian Act decides that. Interesting. And um, you know, as long as we have the Indian Act, which was drafted in eighteen eighty nine, yeah. um, as long as this is in place, we're not going to have that autonomy. You know, we have to have amendments that work for our communities, or we just have to go back and rewrite the whole thing. 
And so they're using that as the Bible for how they act on all of this. They're, it, it's, to them, it's the truth, and that's the way they're going to treat it. Yes, that's and exactly. So, and so is there any conversation on, on, on either amending it, dealing with it? Because, because here's the thing. Like, is, these, it's not just these issues. This, is, this can be life or death. This can be disease or not yeah. disease. Like, this is, this is a massive issue at the highest level. So is there other alternatives? Like, I, I was wondering if you could bring insight. Are you able to dig wells or maybe there's bedrock or maybe it's mountainous? Like, how far out, just to give our viewers, because honestly, I, I don't even know. How far out are we talking? Are you from infrastructure? Um, we we just have no decision making. Yeah. If you talk to any of the chiefs in Canada today and you ask them what their biggest issue is, it's that it's control. Yeah. They have no they're the chief of the reserve. They, you yeah. know, they manage um, you know, the everyday happenings, yes. but they don't manage big ticket items like water and our infrastructure. They just yeah. don't have that decision making powers. Yeah. And that is the biggest frustration that we encounter. You know, when you look at um bigger issues like climate change, yeah. you know, it, it's easier for the government, for the federal government to control us in regards to that in offering. Um, you know, certain money for a solar power, you know, farm or a wind farm, they offer money for that, mm -hmm. but they don't offer money for anything else, any other business uh, that a reserve may want to get into, you know, they may be abundant in oil and gas, and they absolutely won't allow that if that's not on their agenda. And, you know, you have different groups like Indigenous Resource Network, who mm -hmm. is, advocating for, um, you know, for funding for reserves yeah. to, to start up in this industry. And, you know, they only get so far because if it's not on the government's um, list of things they want to do, then it's just going to get pushed to a back room and be never heard of again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the fight you're fighting. And that's the fight you're trying to bring light to a, a day in and day out, which is great. It's excellent. Because like I said before, um, <laughs> if, if my family wasn't able to shower, have clean water, I would be standing on the mountaintop screaming for yeah. all to hear and see. I hope that our viewers and everybody can see or even put themselves in, in their shoes and imagine that like at a real level. It's something that I feel that we can't ignore. Um, that, that, and I, in fact, I'll bet you if you ask a lot of Canadians just generally, hey, uh, do you think that there's any Canadians that maybe don't have access to clean water? Most of them, I think, would say, no, we're in Canada. Are you kidding? Yeah. That would be their general response. And if you were to educate them and say, well, actually, no. There's lots, there's many, and, uh, but it's quite wild. Now, you have, a, you have a, a very interesting stance when it comes to pipelines on reserves, because um, if I'm going to be brutally honest, and please excuse my ignorance when it comes to understanding a lot of this, but when it comes to pipelines, you have a very different stance than what the mainstream media tends to push. So can you tell me a bit about that? I will have to kind of go back into my childhood. Um, yeah. You know, I was very close to my grandparents. Yeah. I called them Musham and Cookham. And uh, my Musham was my biggest teacher in life. Yeah. You know, he, he, he was a humble man. Um, he rarely left the reserve. So he, he wasn't an engineer in any way. He wasn't a geologist. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he told that he told me in the future, um, you know, what, what's going to feed our community is what's in the ground. Un, like what's under the ground. And he, he told me that if, you know, if I work in this industry, you know, try keep the operations underground, like yeah. try keep the work underground. And I had no idea what he meant <laughs> until I was in my early twenties and yeah. I was working on a pipeline and, you know, it was actually 
pretty close to my community. So I was able to, um, you know, spend a lot of time with them. And there was a lot of opposition, you know, the media doesn't like pipelines, doesn't like oil and gas. So there was a lot of opposition. So what the company did, they were actually pretty creative. Um, You know, they got their communities together and they took them on this pipeline. Like they actually walk them through this line uh, at different phases. So the people were able to see how it was dug up. They were able to see how they put the soil and how they put the soil back the way they found it. And during this process, they even had to uh, move some smaller animals like frogs and snakes. They had to relocate them. So for the people to see this and to be up close and upfront and actually part of this process, it opened their eyes to a different, um, to this industry. And it wasn't so bad after all, you know, with the opposition that they kind of had in the beginning, it it just kind of phased away because Mm -hmm. people were a little bit more accepting of this. And it was really great that the company had done this. What is there another way to transport oil and gas? You know, that's my question to the general public. If not pipelines, then what? You know, we can't depend on rail. You know, we can't depend on these other sources. They're a substitute to it. But, you know, it's not the only way. So if it's not pipelines, then then what is it? And to this day, and every time I ask this, nobody has come back with an answer for me. And nobody had said, well, what about this? Or what about that? Nothing. So let's figure out how we can make pipelines safe. Let's figure if we need more monitoring systems along the way, as opposed to every 50 kilometers, maybe we need to put them every 25 kilometers, you know, so we can identify a leak right away. You know, they've become very, they've used technology in the last five or so years where they can detect leaks and where they've um, upgraded their systems where, uh, you know, something like a spiller leak won't happen. And if it does, they catch it right away. So these are the kinds of things that we should be thinking about. And these are some of the solutions that we should be bringing to this industry as opposed to saying, nope, you know, this, this is not happening because if there's a, not another way, yeah. then we have to focus on what we currently have and how to make it better. Well, yeah, because it also speaks to the issue we've addressed at the very beginning of this, the whole water issues that if, if this, if they're able to use your land and bring resource to the land and there's an exchange of funds, it could help fund other issues or, or bring, bring all sorts of funding into programs or social needs that are just needed for the people in general. Um, so I, and that, the thing I find is that like I was giving light to before the media, it's just, it's so hard to figure out what is going on. What is just like, would you go out as far as to say that the liberal party was, is using a lot of these hot button issues just for votes? Yeah. Um, did you see any of those changes happen? Do you know any people who saw some of the water boil advisories go away? Are they still gone? Did the liberals actually make a difference? Uh, there's actually three communities in Saskatchewan that are pretty close to mine. And, um, according to this graph and to this list, their water, uh, advisory was removed and it appeared that it had been fixed as well. I visited these communities and, and I visit them quite frequently throughout the summer. Um, so I asked one day is how's your water issue? Like, are you guys, do you guys have water now? And they pointed to some jugs, blue bottles of jugs in the corner. And they said, well, we get these delivered. I was like, so your issue didn't get fixed. They're like, well, they bring us these blue jugs to drink. Um, We can't drink the tap water yet, but we can use it for bathing and we can use it for cleaning, but we just can't drink it. And I was like, well, according to the list, it says that 
your reserve has clean water. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of missing information when it comes to what the government provides people. Yes, it looks like they've, they've cleaned and fixed a lot of these issues, but they really haven't because a lot of these communities are ending back up on an advisory list because it hasn't been fixed. Or if it was, it was a bandaid fix that didn't work. And now they have to start that process over again. So it's very frustrating. It's very um, time consuming. And if they're not going to address a bigger ticket item like the Indian Act, then at least address the services that come to our communities. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I've, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but in my research, I found out that when it comes to reserves and um, not resources, uh, water, all the services, that it actually falls under the federal government, not the provincial. Whereas in Calgary, Edmonton, off anywhere off the reserve that it falls under the province. And that's, is that because of the, um, like the acts that were signed, the agreed, why why is it not provincial? Um, Well, the provincial really doesn't manage anything on the reserves. Um, Even when it comes to oil and gas or natural resource extraction, they don't, they don't, um, they don't manage any of that. That's up to the reserve and the federal government to manage. Uh, It's considered federal lands. So if you look at a map of Alberta, for example, all the reserves are going to be marked as red because it's just an area that the province doesn't, um, they don't have jurisdiction over um, these types of lands. Yeah. Like I said, I, I just hope that somebody gets a compassionate heart here and actually wants to bring some true change. Because I, like I said, I just can't help but think of the babies and the mothers and the families and the, that just can't even make a proper meal or wash their kids properly. I think it's just incredibly sad. Um, and so, yeah, there's, I, I feel like there's many issues that the Liberal Party, Party has addressed or maybe promised and not followed through completely. And there's another issue that they were doing or that they proposed, and that was Bill C-21. What kind of reaction is coming from the Indigenous people when it comes to the possible banning of hunting-style rifles? So my, I come from a family of hunters and trappers. Uh, my uncle is the main one in our family who goes out and hunts every season. Um, he, they need this uh, to be able to feed their families. I mean, with the cost, the rising cost of food, it's even harder today uh, to feed families. And, you know, so we rely on hunting. And he was really concerned when this bill came down, especially when they started adding uh, different rifles to it, like hunting rifles. And you would have pushback saying, well, these aren't hunting rifles. who's making that distinction? Um, You know, it's something that, you know, Northerners are using. It's a, it's, you know, something that my uncle has, he's had legal possession of it. He gets licensed, you know, he does all the proper paperwork to be able to have this firearm. And you have, you know, someone in Ottawa who's now making these decisions on telling him what to use to hunt. And it was, it it was a very, um, for him, it was a very concerning time. And he was like, once this bill is so for him, he said, once this bill comes in, what are my rights now? Like, what can I do to be able to continue hunting? Um, Because now they're taking that away. Now it involves something a little bit bigger. And I told him, I don't have the answer. Like, I I really don't know unless they make an amendment and remove certain firearms. Like, I I don't know what their next course of action would be. So they did the right thing. You know, they, they went back and looked at it and scrapped uh, some of those amendments that were made. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's allowing our hunters to feel, 
you know, some sort of, um, you know, safety in having their firearm, but who knows, maybe the next, you know, maybe yeah. somebody will bring it up again and this time it will go through. So it's very challenging for me and for yeah. grassroots people when people in Ottawa are making these, these decisions for us without consulting us and without asking us, how is this going to impact you? So it's, it's definitely, um, you know, it's always changing. I find like we're always pushing back on stuff. You know, they really say they're, um, you know, very big on consultation and talking to indigenous communities, but they're not, they're not doing it. They're not living up to what they promised. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly it. And especially the way that they went about it starting very conservatively, very yeah. narrow, but then going extremely broad. You know, I want to jump back to the pipeline um, conversation before we wrap up here. We only have a few minutes left, but, um, you know, sometimes I've seen some very extreme pipeline um, protests where there's people standing on the line, not allowing trucks through and blocking all these things. Would you say that that is a, the media is kind of dramatizing that, or would you say that's an accurate representation of maybe how Indigenous people feel or that it's just, like, what's your opinion on it? So I'll tell you about a, a situation that happened in my community. Yeah. So when this Wet'suwet'en Strong, um, when this was going around and uh, people were blocking the CGL line in BC, yes. one of my members in my community who um, doesn't necessarily get along with everyone to begin yeah. with, didn't really like our chief in council. Yeah. When this was happening, so they decided to they decided to protest on behalf of them. Oh, wow. So what they did was they took their vehicle, blocked off a highway that ran through our community, and was standing with this community in BC. Um, we kind of got together as a community because it, it's a safety issue. There's um, a train tracks that was to one side of it, the reserve was on the other side, and this was this highway is the only means to travel to get to appointments, doctors, shopping, what have you. So they removed her and, um, you know, the police had to come in and escort her away and told her if she comes back, she's going to get fined because that's illegal. And the community supported that. But I'm going to turn this into a situation. If the media had caught wind of this one person in my community who opposed something in BC, and really elevated her voice, then she would be the voice of my community, which isn't the case. So what I'm seeing happening in a lot of these communities is a lot of outsiders are coming in, a lot of different activists from different groups, and they're saying we're speaking for this community when in fact they aren't. So the media is misrepresenting what is happening in that community, because if you go and talk to the chief and council and you go and talk to maybe a few families on that reserve, they'll tell you exactly what's happening. And they'll even tell you if those people are from that community or not. And, you know, you jump on an issue and, you know, you get some media attention and you start opening your GoFundMe accounts. Yeah, of course, that's a lucrative business and nobody's going to want to move from that pipeline. So at the end of the day, it does has nothing to do with a pipeline, really. You know, it's an activist that's, you know, leveraging off an Indigenous issue and they're making money from it. They're profiting without realizing they're taking opportunities away from that community. Because after all of this is done and it's settled, who's going to want to go back and work with them? Who's going to want to invest in that community? Absolutely no one. And that is what these activists are doing. They're taking opportunities. They're taking economic benefits away from our communities. And that has to stop. Well, absolutely. And I think um, I've seen it firsthand. I've gone reporting to events and all sorts of things where there's controversial things happening. 
and I've seen cameramen who are the if the event is happening here, but they'll go and look at this one person who is easily an instigator, someone you know isn't representing the whole big picture, but they'll focus their camera just right. The reporter will step in front and go, we're live right here. And it's true. It's accurate. He is live and he is right there and that this is happening, but it's not the big picture. It's not the full yeah. investigation. And unfortunately, most Canadians will, we just see headlines. We see an inf- yeah. uh, something pop up on our iPhone and we read the one headline. Very rare for someone to go dig in. Very yeah. rare for someone to go and find and actually think. And and if I think there's any silver, silver lining that's happened over these last couple of years of of lockdowns and all sorts of things throughout the pandemic was that I do think there's been a large majority of people who their minds, it's almost like the veil has been pulled off where they're starting to ask yeah. questions, starting to dig in a little deeper. And, and I think that's why they're starting to look for programs such as this, for people such as you that are, are making a difference, trying to dive in, continue to look. So that's, that's something I, I think is just wild and has to hopefully continue to change for the positive. Um, one of the last questions I want to ask you really quick is, is about healthcare services. You mentioned that there's doctor appointments on that road. What is the healthcare situation in, in the Indigenous world? Is, it, is the government also assisting there in a good way, bad way? Is it, what's it like? I mean, they've done nothing for decades. Um, there's very few communities within Canada who are actually getting health facilities, which are much needed, but we can do more. Uh, we need testing. We have, yeah. you know, my community has a high rate of diabetes. Yeah. So people need to get tested. They need yeah. to get tested frequently. Yeah. And they don't have this opportunity because the nearest testing center or facility is 45 minutes away. And if wow. they need to go to an ER, that's an hour and a half away or two and a half hours, depending on which city you want to go to. Yeah. So the services are very lacking. You know, we need to start working around that. You know, COVID really highlighted mm-hmm. the need for these services and we need more funding. And, you know, what people don't realize is that if you put these facilities in First Nations communities, it's going to stop the overburden in yeah. larger city centers. You know, it's if you true. have a backlog of, you know, an ER, for example, well, a lot of those issues, a lot of the issues why people are going to the ER could have been managed with mm. proper care, with proper testing. So they wouldn't have ended up in the ER and they wouldn't have ended up backlogging a system and, and you know, kind of um, weighing it down. But if we have that, you know, pre-care, that that care within our communities and people are actually, you know, invested in their health, that's going to change. That's going to change the overall um, health picture. So we really need to start thinking about these things. Um, the federal government needs to start funding certain programs that we're asking for. And they need to start looking at this in a bigger picture because we need these services in rural communities, not just for Indigenous people, but for rural people as well. We can yeah. all benefit from this. For sure. And it's, it's, uh, it's a really big deal. Like my son had uh, a bit of an, uh, an issue that we had to rush him to the ER for a couple of weeks ago. And I went to the ER and lo- like, I'm very benef- I'm very lucky to have it 15 minutes from my home. Like very lucky. And even still though, when I got there, the lady said to me, look, we can't even look at him for 24 hours. And mm-hmm. I was like, 24 hours. I'm going, yeah. how- you don't even know how emergent this is. Yeah. And so never mind. I can't imagine not having even access to a hospital. So Luckily, I was able to go and find another hospital. And, and, and so I, I think until we as Canadians make these issues personal to us, mm-hmm. where we realize, man, if I was in that situation, I'd be scared. I'd be worried. Yeah. Like, that's a big deal. These are children. These are, these are people with yeah. health medical issues. Like, it, it's, it's scary and wild to think that they can't sort these things out and get the proper care they need. 
In yeah. um, some closing thoughts, what do you wish that Canadians would know or what do you wish they knew about your community um, and the issues at hand? Like in just some final thoughts. Uh, one of my one of the things that I'm really working on is ending poverty wow. or at least bringing jobs to our communities. Yeah. So when you see a big ticket issue out in the media, you know, just think if I oppose this and, you know, I kind of side with this person, yeah. what is that taking away from the community? You know, what is that taking away from these people? And so we really have to think about which stance you take. And, and I always tell people, don't take a stance, you know, let them figure it out themselves because eventually they will. Yeah. Um, and it's not really the issue on hand. So let's say a pipeline. That's not really the issue. Yeah. You know, there's other workings going on in that community that are the issue that need to be addressed. So don't become involved in it, you know, do some research yeah. and, you know, don't take a stance. And if you are going to take a stance, then um, try to mediate and try help them figure it out themselves, because that's the best thing that you can do for us. Well, I appreciate your time, Melissa. You've, uh, you've honestly clarified and brought a lot of light to things that I just were question marks in my world. And so I appreciate your time and thank you for doing what you do. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for bringing me onto your platform. I Absolutely. really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Melissa. You are an essential part of this series. Support truth, knowledge, and wisdom by sharing this show with a friend. Visit returntoreason.tv. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter by clicking Become an Insider. Get the latest articles, episodes, and exclusive content. It's Return to Reason.